Good morning. For those of you who are new today, uh, fear not, I am not one of the pastors here. And this is Ridge Church, and you are in the right place. But my name is Duchess, and uh, I'm going to be talking to you today about uh, the parable of the hidden treasure. Uh, We've been in a series on stories and talking about parables, and today we're going to be talking about that parable, the parable of the hidden treasure. And we find that in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verse 44. It's one verse, two sentences, and it reads as follows. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, imagine stumbling across an investment opportunity that you are sure would bring you great wealth and everything you've ever wanted in life. You decide that you have to have it. So you, you, you sell your house, your car, your bicycle, your motorcycle, all your TVs, because you know you probably have more than one. You take all of your books and you take them to McKay's, or if you live in Oak Ridge, to Mr. K's, and you sell those too. Your furniture, your DVDs and CDs, your appliances, your lawnmower, all your jewelry, including your wedding band, any gold fillings you might have in your teeth, your golf clubs, everything. You want this investment so desperately that you are willing to give it all up. That is what Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like. It is so awesome that nothing else matters. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to speak to your people, and I pray that you would open every heart and mind to receive from your word. Lord, I pray that this wouldn't be a formality, uh, just something that we do, but that we would indeed hear you and respond. And so, Lord, that is my prayer, and I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are two important questions that I feel that we need to address right off the bat. Number one, what exactly is a parable? And number two, why did Jesus use them so often? Now, when it comes to parables, we are typically dealing with a brief allegory that embodies one or more themes. And because parables are allegorical in nature, we must identify the other meaning of what it is we're reading. We read what it's saying, but what is it really saying? This is our question, and this is why it's important, I think, that we tie this parable into what John the Baptist says in Matthew 3. And we're going to get to that in a moment, but in essence, what John the Baptist does is he identifies and clarifies the symbolism within this parable. Now, let me back up for just a second. When dealing with allegories, we find in the narrative that symbolism is used, where a detail in the text stands for something else. And Jesus clearly identified how this works when he broke down the meaning of the parable 
of the soils and the parable of the weeds. And basically, he goes through those parables and he says, this stands for this, and this stands for this, and this stands for this. So in, a, in the parable of the hidden treasure, we're basically dealing with three things. We're dealing with the kingdom of heaven. We're dealing with a hidden treasure. And we're dealing with a man who gives up everything he has because he wants that treasure. So what we have to figure out is, from an allegorical standpoint, what stands for what. Again, John the Baptist is going to help us with this. But before we jump into that, we need to address our second question. We have a basic understanding of what a parable is. But the question remains, why did Jesus use them? And for this, we go to Mark 33, I'm sorry, Mark 4, 33, and 34. And this is what we find. Quote, Jesus used many similar stories and illustrations to teach the people as much as they could understand. In fact, in his public ministry, he never taught without using parables. But afterward, when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything to them. And this is interesting, because here Mark is saying that Jesus never taught publicly without using parables. And I don't know if he means that Jesus never, ever taught publicly without using parables, or if what he's insinuating is that Jesus used parables so often that it was, it was as if he never taught without using parables. Kind of like that person who is late so often that it's like they're never on time. It doesn't mean that they're never, ever, ever on time. It's just that they're late so often that it's kind of like they're never, ever, ever on time. But either way, it's clear that Jesus uses parables a lot. So what was that like? It would be like Bobby coming here every Sunday and speaking in parables, riddles, and metaphors. And then afterwards, when he's with the elders, explaining to them what he meant by what he said. And it would seem as if he didn't really care if the rest of us got it or not. And it also kind of seems like perhaps Jesus didn't really care if those who came to hear him speak got it or not. But here's the thing. In verse 33, it says that he taught the people as much as they could understand. People were able to get out of it whatever they were capable of getting out of it. That's why he would say things like, he who has an ear, let him hear. Some people were there to hear him speak, but they weren't really there to hear him speak. The same is true in churches today. The same is perhaps true for some of you here today. So Jesus' remedy was not to make his message flashy and fun so that those with no real heart for it would feel entertained. No. Strangely enough, he chose to use parables almost all the time. He would, he would throw them out there and then basically say, if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. 
Sounds crazy, I know, but it's true. I also want to add one clarifying point. Just like Jesus would take his disciples to the side and explain to him what he really meant by what he was saying, he still does that today. When we spend time alone together with him in his word and in in prayer, he makes clear to us what he means by what it is that he's saying. Now, to reiterate what I said a moment ago, Our job when dealing with parables is to determine what Jesus is really saying. Now we know that we are dealing with allegories and symbolism, but what do they really mean? Not what does it mean to me or or you or, or what do I think it means, but what did Jesus mean when he said what he said? This is our question. Now, In order to really understand what's going on in our parable, we have to at least have a basic understanding of what Jesus says when he means when he says kingdom of heaven. And for that, we do travel back to Matthew 3, and this is where we pick up on John the Baptist. In uh, Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2, this is what we find. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some translations read the kingdom of heaven is is near, and I like that word near because it, it, it means right here, very close to us, very near to us. Now, the, the other day I was out walking and, you know, just out walking, doing my own thing and minding my own business, And I happened to look over, and there was a man's wallet on the ground right beside where I was walking. I could very easily have have passed it right by. I wasn't out looking for men's wallets, uh, but it was right there. And according to this passage, the the kingdom of heaven is, is kind of similar to this. It's right here, very near to us. But some of us, or perhaps many of us walk right by without even noticing. But not, not this man, not the man in our parable, not the man in the parable of the hidden treasure. Now, he wasn't out looking for hidden treasure any more than I was out looking for men's wallets, which I did turn in, by the way. <laughs> he didn't have a metal detector out looking for jewels and coins. No, he, he stumbled upon it. Now, he, he may have been digging or working in that field, or maybe it was somehow exposed. We don't, we don't know. But what we do know is that he came upon it, and it wasn't because he was looking. Now, back to Matthew 3. One thing we have to understand about the kingdom of heaven is that it is here now, but it is also coming later. In a sense, the kingdom of heaven began during Jesus' earthly ministry. Hence, John the Baptist's statement, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. But the kingdom of heaven will not be fully realized until Jesus returns. So there is some element of it that we must long for and wait for, resulting in strain and tension in our lives. Other elements, however, are right here. Right now, like 
salvation. Now, John the Baptist, as we see in this verse, he admonished the people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. In Matthew 4.17, we find Jesus saying the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Acts 2.28, after his powerful sermon at Pentecost, the people were convicted and they asked Peter what they should do. His response? Repent and be baptized. Over and over in Scripture, we find the kingdom of heaven being coupled with repentance. How do we respond to the kingdom of heaven? We repent. How do we respond to the gospel? We repent. The kingdom of heaven and the gospel are one. In this parable, the hidden treasure that this man finds is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news. The word of salvation. The way. The truth. The life. Jesus. This is the treasure that this man stumbles across. This is the great treasure that he finds in this field. Now, let's be very, very, very clear about something. Salvation costs you nothing. We need look no further than Ephesians 2.8 for confirmation of this. There we find this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So, so we get that right. Salvation is free. In fact, we couldn't do anything to broker it even if we wanted to, which none of us actually wanted to. Prior to God bringing our hearts to life and placing in us a desire to know him, we didn't want him and we weren't capable of wanting him. Romans 3.11 confirms this. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. So we clearly see that salvation is free. It is a gift. We don't go after God, God comes after us. Nevertheless, when he comes for us, to make us his own, and when he saves us, giving us the free gift of eternal life, he has some very serious and real expectations. Now this brings us to Luke 14. There were a lot of people following Jesus and listening to his teaching. Just like there are a lot of people who attend churches today. And one day, while speaking to a large crowd, he, he admonished them to count the cost of truly being his disciple. So in Luke 14, 25 through 33, we read the following, quote, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own Life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's a lot. And to our natural minds, it can seem a bit overwhelming. But I think Jesus' point here, and in the parable we're looking at today, is that what he is and what he offers is truly so great that if we ever really find it, we won't want anything more. He becomes enough. More than enough, actually. So we understand that salvation is free. We also understand that discipleship is costly. Now, for a stark contrast to our parable of the hidden treasure, we need look no further than the story of the rich young ruler or the story of the rich young man or the story of the dude that had a lot of money. However you want to put it, it's, it's found in Matthew 19, and we're going to read 16. Through 29. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, 
or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now here's what we have to understand about the parable of the hidden treasure and about this story of the rich young ruler. In them, both of these men have stumbled upon the same treasure. Jesus is that treasure. The gospel message is that treasure. That's what we're talking about here. The rich young ruler is speaking face to face with the treasure Jesus describes in this parable, but he doesn't even know it. What is this treasure? The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is a bad news, good news situation. The bad news is that we are all sinners, and for that, we deserve death and eternal damnation. The good news is that God, because of his great love and mercy, has made provision for us by way of Jesus Christ. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, God has arranged it so that our sin is imputed or credited to Jesus, resulting in death, albeit temporary, and his righteousness is imputed or credited to us, resulting in the forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. This is the gospel by which we are saved, if we believe it from the heart. Now, in our parable, when the man found the treasure, which we've already identified as the gospel, he immediately went about selling everything he had in order to obtain that treasure. When he looked at it, he recognized its value and knew that he had to have it. So he gave it all up. The rich young ruler, by comparison, sees the treasure, speaks to the treasure, yet doesn't recognize it for what it is. He is unwilling to do what the other man did, even when explicitly instructed to do so. Jesus gave him a cheat sheet, and yet he still didn't get it. Now, notice the man in our parable went about selling his possessions with great joy. Our rich young ruler walked away sorrowful. And I believe that this is significant. No matter what they promise, people, places, and things can never deliver the kind of joy that is found only in Christ. Never. There will always be a degree of letdown and a degree of sorrow. The comparison of these two stories is at the heart of everything that I'm trying to say this morning. Here's the truth. Everyone responds to the gospel either as the man who finds the hidden treasure or as the rich young ruler. There's no in-between. Modern Christianity, especially in the States, would have us believe that there is this oh, lukewarm, middle-of-the-road option but you won't find that in Scripture. Jesus is really, really clear about what it looks like to follow him, what it looks like to know him, what it looks like to love him. And guess what? It's radical. 
Every time, in every case, for every true disciple, it's radical. It's crazy. So the question we must ask ourselves, and the question that I honestly wrestle with daily is, am I really, from my heart, surrendering all that I am to Him? Am I? And this is not a time for playing games or trying to make myself feel like I'm okay when I'm not. Never ever in the world has there been a more important question. An untruthful answer will not help in the end. Now, uh, when, when Rusty opened the series uh, a few weeks ago, he talked about uh, Matthew 7. And um, I think that the, the, the passage there bears repeating. And so, let's go to Matthew 7, 21 through 23. And this is what we find. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are a lot of things in life that are scary. Horror movies can be scary. Snakes, kind of scary. The thought of being in an airplane that crashes in the ocean, a little scary. A little scary. But nothing frightens me like this passage. Nothing. It's scary because it emphasizes how easy it is to be totally deceived about your own Salvation. I used to think it wasn't possible to be truly deceived in this way. I thought that deep down inside, people always know whether or not they're truly saved. I don't believe that anymore. This passage of scripture won't let me believe that. It is absolutely, totally beyond a shadow of a doubt possible to think you're saved when you're not. That's scary. You know, it's, it's one thing to live a life of debauchery and then in the end find that you're rejected by Christ. I, I get that. I, I understand that. I can live with that and sleep at night knowing that. But it's quite another to Go to church faithfully, read your Bible, pray, give, to live a very religious life, only to find in the end that it was in vain. That's hard. That hurts. The parable of the hidden treasure and the story of the rich young ruler are really stories about our response to the gospel. How do we respond to this treasure of all treasures? 
Respond we must, and respond we will. Everyone responds, I respond, you respond. The only question is how. Do we with great joy surrender all that we are and all that we have to Him? Or do we sorrowfully walk away, refusing to let go of that which we hold dear? Our goals, our agendas, our relationships, our stuff, our sins. Here's what we have to grasp. Jesus is worth it. Look at him through the lens of scripture and you will see that he is infinitely more valuable than anything you have or will ever have in this life. More than mother and father, more than husband or wife, more than brother or sister, more than house, car, or career, more than all the money, jewels, and trinkets in all the universe. More even than our very lives. Can you see why the man who came upon this treasure willingly, joyfully, gave up all he had in order to have it? That very same decision stands before us today. What will it be? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, which is so true and so powerful and deeply meaningful to us. And Father, I pray that it would live in our hearts, but God, I pray that it would also live in our lives. I pray that you would take the word today and I pray that you would make it real to us, so real in fact that we respond as the man who found that treasure hidden in the field willingly and joyfully giving up all that we have and all that we are to have it, to have you. This is our prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.